Good morning. So good to see everybody today. Today we are beginning chapter three in our journey through the book of Hebrews. Larry, there's something weird going on up here. Sound-wise, it's like a big feedback towards me or something. Does it sound okay to y'all out there? It's about to blow me off the stage up here, so I know what's going on. It's loud. They're saying it's very loud. All right, so uh, we're going to begin chapter 3 in our journey through Hebrews, so if you do have your Bibles, why don't you turn there? I've been looking at how in the first three verses of chapter one, the author makes some pretty bold claims about Jesus. And so now he is in the process of backing those claims up. And first he does that by comparing Jesus to some of the most icon, uh, iconic uh, uh, people um, in the, the history of the Hebrews, the people that they have traditionally viewed as these great and ultimate things. Chapter 1 and 2 is about how Jesus was greater than angels. Chapter 3, he's going to compare Jesus to another iconic figure, someone who has always been just kind of this ultimate hero to them. So let's stand this morning, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first six verses. So let's read. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for your word this morning, the truths that are in this. God, I pray again that you would open our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you. Lord, that we would be transformed by the power of your word, of your, uh, your truth. God, I pray that we would leave here knowing that we encountered you and we are different for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There are two things that all humans need. If you're following along in the bulletin there in the notes, this is the first thing listed. Every person on earth always has and always will need these two things. God created us to need them. We cannot survive without them. And the first one is a word from God. We need a word from God because we need to hear from God so that we will know what he is like so that we will know what his purpose is for us and what he requires of us. You know, to be able to hear from God is not one of those things where we can just kind of take it or leave it. You know, if I hear from him, if I don't, it's not a big deal. We cannot have a nonchalant or apathetic attitude about it. No, it is a necessity and we are absolutely lost without it. And it would be like trying to follow a compass with no arrow on it or, or riding a boat with no udder or 
to put it in today's terminology, trying to find your way to a certain location with no Siri or GPS on your phone to, to show you how to get there. You just be randomly flailing around hoping that you might get lucky and stumble upon it somehow. But it's not just humans that need to hear from God either. Everything does because God's word says that that is what all things are, are sustained by. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 1.3 that says, He upholds everything by the what of his power? Yeah, not the strength of his power, not the might of his power, but by the word of his power, he upholds all things. We need a word from God. Then the second thing we need is a way to God. His word can tell us who he is and what we need, but we still need a way to get to him. Carol and I were going to this new restaurant up near Tyler one evening. It was kind of out in the country. And so I put the address in the GPS, the the Maps app on my phone, and it showed us exactly how to get there. And so we're going around Loop 49, like it uh, told 49 Road, like it told us to. And I could see on there that the road coming up next should be the road that we're going to turn right on, and it's going to take us straight to that restaurant. And so as we got closer, we looked around, and there is no road anywhere to be seen. The closest thing to it was a railroad track that was running under a bridge that we were now going on, but there was definitely no road. And so I looked back down at the map, and I can see that the blinking blue dot that represented our location is now going past the red dot that represents where we were trying to get. And we just knew, I mean, it was just right there, but there was no road there. And we had all the right information. We knew exactly where that restaurant was. We just had no way to get there. We eventually figured out we had to go all the way into Tyler, go around the regular loop, and then follow some back roads all the way to it. And so while it is necessary to have a word from God, it doesn't do us much good without a way to him. This is what we see in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was all about receiving a word from God. Hebrews 1.1, again, we looked at this where it says, God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. God was constantly speaking in the Old Testament. And the people then, they really didn't have much of a problem hearing God. They just didn't have a way to get to him. He hadn't yet provided that. They thought that they had a way to him. The first thing they thought they had was Uh, just being of the right people if being of the right bloodline that was the way to get to God just as long as you were a Hebrew as uh, God's chosen people then that was definitely the way to God but that wasn't the way it was just a shadow of it and then they thought that the law was their way to God if you just obey the law then that's how you get to God but it was impossible to keep it and it too was just a shadow of what was to come Hebrews 3.1 addresses both of these needs. Look at it again. He says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Now, I want to stop right there because the writer is identifying his audience here. These aren't just random Hebrews that he is writing to in general. No, these are Christian Hebrews. They have heard the calling. They have heard a word from God. But the word and the calling being referenced here is was different than the one in the Old Testament. This calling wasn't just a word from God, but it was also meant to show us the way to God. 
And then after that, the rest of the verse, he says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The reason why the writer chose these two particular descriptions of Jesus, apostle and high priest, is because they answer both of these two needs. An apostle means one who is sent, sent to relay a message. That's why Jesus' disciples, they, they took on a new title after he gave the great commission just before he ascended back to the Father. After that, they were no longer just disciples, followers of Jesus. They were now apostles, messengers for Jesus. They were to go into all the world and preach the gospel, relay the message, the, the word of this heavenly calling. And so Jesus, as our apostle, solves the first of our two needs. John, we know in the beginning of his gospel, this is how he referred to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was the Word of God, which just reiterates what we saw in Hebrews 1.1. The rest of it where he says, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. The other description of Jesus, our high priest, Answers our second need, a way to God. A priest was a go-between. In the times of the Old Testament, under the sacrificial system of the law, the people would bring their offering to the priest, and he would make a sacrifice of that offering, thus absolving the people of their sin. The priest was the one who made the people right With God. He was the go between between the people and God. Of course, we can now see that the priest in the Old Testament was just a shadow, a a representation of the ultimate high priest who was to come in Jesus. He took the only thing that we could offer, which was our sin, became the sacrifice for it, providing the only way for us to be made right with God. The difference between his sacrifice and the ones under the old covenant was that those sacrifices just covered sin. His sacrifice completely takes it away. And so what Hebrews 3.1 tells us is the next point. Jesus is both our word from God and our way to God. This is the heavenly calling That the writer is talking about. Christians are people who have been gripped by this calling. The word of God broke through our resistance. Took hold of us with the truth of the love of Christ. Reconciled us to God and is now leading us home to heaven. And because of that we are people of great hope. God has spoken from heaven. We have heard what he has said. We have believed in what he said And our hope is confident and firm. And the reason why it is confident and firm is because of this glorious truth. Our hope is not in ourselves. If it was in ourselves, it wouldn't be firm at all. What do I mean by that? Well, this morning, gathered here together in this building, are all types of sinners. I know we like to put on our masks and pretend like we've got it all together, but the truth is none of us do. We are not a church full of perfect people, and we shouldn't claim to be, shouldn't even pretend to be, even though that's what we do. We're a church full of sinners. 
Sexual sinners, lying sinners, stealing sinners, cheating sinners, parent disobeying sinners. And so why, in light of that, knowing that about ourselves, because I don't think what I said just came as a surprise to any of you. If it did, something is wrong. We all know this about ourselves, and so why, in light of that, do we come in here and worship God? Or I guess a better question would be, how can we come in here and worship God in that condition, believing that he is going to accept anything that we offer to him? How can we even assume to have the right to come before a holy God in that condition? Because the hope of our calling is not based on ourselves. Our hope does not hang on our righteousness. If it did, we would have absolutely no hope at all. We would have no right. This is why verse 1, he addresses this to holy brethren. He says, therefore, holy brethren. Now wait, what? Uh, Who's he talking to? I just called us a bunch of sinners, but the writer of Hebrews is calling us holy Yes, as I've said many, many times, who we are in Christ has absolutely nothing to do with what we do. In him, he doesn't see us as sinners. In him, we are holy. Our hope is firm because it's not based on us. It's not based on our righteousness. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus. It's his holiness and his righteousness that we have been given as an unbelievable act of his free grace. And that's why he tells us there in verse 1, to the holy brethren, consider Jesus. The original word that the author used there for consider is a Greek word that I can't even pronounce. I'm not going to try. But it means to fix one's eye or mind upon. Holy brethren, fix your eyes, fix your mind upon Jesus. Consider Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews is, it was written in order to help us consider Jesus And I'm telling you right now, there is more to consider about Jesus than you could ever exhaust in a whole lifetime. And we often think that considering Jesus is something believers or or non-believers should do. Consider Jesus, we'll say, to the lost and the ones who are trying to find their way as well we should. But the book of Hebrews is devoted to helping Christians better consider Jesus. He says, holy brethren... You consider Jesus. He's not talking to the lost, but to those who have already been captured and transformed by the power of the gospel. And you might think, well, don't holy brethren automatically consider Jesus? No, we don't. Remember what he said back in verse 1 of chapter 2, that we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. In other words, yes, you've heard it before. You may have heard it several times. Yes, it has saved you, but now you've got to keep paying even closer attention to it, to the gospel. Consider Jesus, because there are so many things in this world that try to draw our attention away from Jesus. So many things that try to tempt us in believing that they will satisfy instead of him. The danger is constantly in our way that we will stop considering Jesus and become more interested in those things. 
So the book of Hebrews is going to call out to us again and again, consider Jesus. Chapter 1 and 2 was to consider how he was superior to angels. And here in chapter 3, he's telling us to consider how he is superior to Moses. Now, why Moses? Well, because to the Hebrew people, Moses was probably the one figure that they looked to, idolized, and respected the most. A modern-day comparison, I guess the closest thing that we have to that today is the way that Catholics view the Pope. And so Moses to the Hebrews was what the Pope is to Catholics. But he was more than just a hero to them. He was their savior. Moses saved the Hebrew people by leading them out of slavery in Egypt. But the writer is saying that Jesus is far superior to Moses. Plus, you remember back in part one, I talked about how these Christian Hebrews had been enduring lots and lots of persecution and it had gotten so bad that many of them were feeling the pull to go back to their former, former way of life. Back to the law. I'm sure they were thinking that if this is what following Jesus gets us, then it's going to be better for us to go back to the way things were before. Following the law of Moses didn't bring any persecution like this. And so the writer is encouraging them not to do that, letting them know that for the Christian, there is no going back. He's saying, stand firm, keep following Jesus. Yes, there are consequences for that. Yes, there is a price to pay for following Jesus, but it is so worth it. Jesus is worth it. Why would you want to follow Moses when Jesus is so much better? And then he gives two reasons of why Jesus is better than Moses. First one there is in verse 3. It says, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So in your notes there, the first reason he gives why Jesus is better than Moses is because he deserves more glory. Jesus deserves more glory than Moses. Now, receiving and giving glory should be a pretty easy concept for us to grasp in our sports-driven sports centered culture the winner receives the glory which comes in the form of praise and accolades respect and fame that's glory and some get more glory than others the person who wins the gold medal gets more glory than the one who wins silver the silver medal medal winner gets more glory than bronze unless We've seen these before where someone is injured and in spite of that injury presses on to some um, phenomenal feat. And then we have another kind of glory that may bring even more praise and more respect than the one who won the gold medal. And so the writer is saying, yes, Moses was a faithful servant. Yes, he led us out of the slavery In Egypt, he deserves glory, but Jesus deserves so much more because he suffered and he died to save us, to bring us out of the slavery of sin. And the second reason why he gives of Jesus being greater than Moses is is in verse 5. Verse 5 in the beginning of 
6. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God, which during Moses' time was a shadow or a representation of the church today. That's why it says there a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. It was all about and pointing to something better, something greater that was to come. But then it says Jesus is the son over the house. And so the second reason he gives there is that Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is a son over the house. The difference between a servant and a son is that the son, by inheritance, he owns the house. He has authority over the house. And he provides for the house out of his wealth. The servant just does whatever the owner tells him. He doesn't own anything. But the writer doesn't just compare and contrast the two. He actually makes it personal to us at the end of verse 6. He says, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. All who are in Christ today make up the house of God. Which means that Jesus, this morning, not back during Moses' day, not just when Jesus was here on the earth, but today, right now, because he is the son over the house, the last point. This means Jesus is our maker, our owner, our ruler, and our provider. And I want us to think about what each one of these things means for us. What good is it to know, or why is it good to know that Jesus is our maker? When I think about this, I think about how for the first day or two after each one of our kids were born, Carol and I would just sit there with this newborn, just staring and marveling over this tiny little brand new human. <laughs> just thinking, wow. And I remember every time just looking at Carol and going, we made this. Just in awe of the miracle of life. And because we made this, and every one of you parents know that there is nothing we wouldn't do to love them unconditionally, to provide for them, to protect them, to care for them. I mean, any good parent would easily die for their child without giving it a second thought and also be willing to call someone else to die if we thought they were a threat to our children. Why? Because you made it. This is your child, this, this human is, is part of you. There's something powerful about the connection between something created and its maker. And as strong as that feeling is that a parent has to love and protect and provide for, Jesus has that same feeling for you only thousands of times stronger. Jesus even said, if you being evil 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give to those who ask him? Saying, you people who are broken and sinful and constantly mess up and are so full of yourselves, if you in that kind of condition know how to be great parents, how great of a parent do you think that God, who is absolutely perfect, is going to be? Don't even compare. So what does it mean that he is our owner? You might think it a bit redundant to say that He's our maker and our owner. I mean, if he made us, then of course he would own us, right? Well, not necessarily. For the Christian, this means a great deal. Because there was a time where we couldn't say that he was our owner. Galatians 4.8 says this. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which by nature are no God's. Over and over again in the New Testament, it reminds us that we were slaves to sin. To be a slave to something means that you are owned by it. And so there was a time where we can't say we were owned by Christ. We were owned by sin. The good news of the gospel is this. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, I came to give my life a ransom for many. To ransom someone means to pay a demanded price for their release. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you have been bought with a price. It is the Christian who can say, I'm owned by Jesus Christ because he purchased me with his blood. Death was the required ransom. Innocent blood was the price demanded for my release. I'm no longer owned by sin. I'm now owned by Jesus. He's our maker, our owner, and our ruler. The fact that he is our ruler means simply that he has authority over us and we are in submission to him. Being in submission to him means that we operate by his ways. That we realize that we are members of his kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. And so we operate by his kingdom principles, his kingdom rules and ways, not by the rules and ways and principles of the kingdom of this world. It means we're more concerned about the things that Jesus desires than we are the things that we desire. You know, I believe that for a lot of people who claim to be Christians, there seems to be these days this big disconnect between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord, which is ruler. They like the idea that their sins are forgiven, but they're still ruling their own life, doing it according to their own ways and following their own desires. Knowing Jesus as ruler by submitting to his authority and his way is the mark of a true believer. And then finally, he's our provider. Philippians 14, 9 says, My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. As Christians, because we are made by, owned by, and ruled by Christ, there is not one thing that we should ever be afraid or worried about not having, 
about being in need of or going without in any way. There is not a physical need, an emotional need, a spiritual need that Jesus doesn't provide for. And it's not just being the provider of food, clothing, and shelter, things like that. No, he is the provider of everything that God requires for us to be in relationship with him, to be accepted by him. Everything that God requires, Jesus provides. We don't have to conjure it up. We don't have to follow a bunch of steps in order to meet it. We can't do it. Jesus provides everything everything that God requires. Now, here's how I want us to apply this this morning. You know, to say that Jesus was greater than Moses... I know that that's something that doesn't really resonate as strong with Christian Americans today as it would have Hebrews back then. And we have never revered Moses the way that they did. But there are things that we do revere. There are things that we look to and rely on and give just as much glory to as they did Moses back then. Probably even more so. And I want you to look at these four aspects of Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit and and decide which one of these do you need to know him as? Because there may be some of you who can say that you know him as owner. I mean, you understand, you grasp the fact that you have been purchased by his blood. You, You get what that means but you have a real hard time believing that he can love you the way I was talking about before. And you need to know him as maker. Some of you may have a grasp of his love, but you still live in your life as if you're the one in charge. You can't say that your life is fully submitted to him. And so you need to know him as ruler. For others of you, Your hope isn't very firm at all because you still think that your status with God at any given moment can change based on how you act. So you're thinking on good days, God is closer to you and he likes you a whole lot more. But on bad days, he's further from you and angry with you. You need to know him as provider, trusting that he has provided Everything that makes your status with God unchanging, completely unchanging. But whatever it is that you are looking to for your fulfillment, for your satisfaction, for your joy, whatever it is that you feel like you're missing in life, this morning, I'm simply asking you to consider Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that in Jesus you have answered our needs. Jesus, I thank you that you are our word that we needed to hear and you are our way we needed to go. Holy Spirit, I pray that right now you would come and 
Just work in the minds and the hearts of every one of us, Lord, who, who have a genuine desire to know you more. Lord, if there is one of these aspects of you that we're just not quite seeing, Lord, I pray that you would just give a revelation of that where it becomes more real than it ever has before. Lord, if there's anybody in here this morning that can say that I've, I've never really heard God speak, not in the way that you're talking about. I've never really accepted Jesus as the only way, but Lord, right now they're, they're hearing something on the inside that they've never heard before. God, I, by your spirit, I pray that you would draw them to salvation. Lord, I pray that our lives will be marked by our hope that is confident and firm, knowing that it's based solely on your righteousness and not ours. Lord, thank you for your promises. We can stand on these things, knowing that they will never be taken away. Lord, help us to constantly remember that. Help us to constantly consider Jesus in everything that we do. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.